This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! It was just over two years ago Diego Perilla first joined me on the podcast to discuss his framework for analyzing financial bubbles and what he calls anti-bubbles. You may have noticed that the topic of bubbles and anti-bubbles has come up in both of my recent interviews with James Davalos on the topic of inflation and Adam Rosenzweig on the mania in green energy stocks. Considering just how relevant Diego's framework is to the current market environment and how dramatically the macro backdrop has changed since we last spoke, I thought it'd be an opportune time to have him back on for a follow-up conversation. In this episode, Diego shares his views on the misconceptions underpinning all sorts of asset bubbles at present and how a paradigm shift in inflation threatens to play the role of pin to each of them. He also discusses why he believes cryptocurrencies are in fact a bubble and how they've created another opportunity in what he sees as one of the oldest and most enduring of anti-bubbles, gold. Ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Diego, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jesse. Pleasure to be back. Yeah, it's it's uh, funny. I thought in you know my last couple of uh, interviews, your bubble anti bubble framework has come up, uh, you know, extensively. <laughs> so I thought I need to have Diego back on to talk about this because it just seems like your this framework uh, of of looking at markets is is I found it to be very valuable. Um, for approaching a variety of asset classes, especially in today's environment. Um, for every yin, there's a yang. And so much of the time, I think we focus on the bubble or the yin, and we fail to appreciate the opportunity set posed by the anti-bubble or the yang. And so I guess to begin with, could you simply share your definitions of a bubble and an anti-bubble? Absolutely. And um, I always like to you know, discuss or present the bubble borrowing uh, George Soros' definition of a bubble. And he talks about bubbles as assets that are artificially expensive based on a belief that happens to be false, what he would call a misconception. So uh, bubbles are situations where the emperor had uh, no clothes, basically. Um, the idea here is, um, uh, with an anti-bubble, is we generalize the framework of the bubbles and say, look, the uh, misconceptions can distort reality, but not only through artificially high valuations, which we call bubbles, you could also have artificially low valuations. And in that sense, the, the first dimension of the concept is assets that are grossly artificially cheap and, and the key word is is artificial and, and 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 the key thing to watch is the misconception so in that sense uh, we're looking at uh, an extreme case of value you're talking about uh, assets where it's a matter of when not if that that they will go up the the second dimension of the concept is this idea that bubbles and anti-bubbles are Two like mirror mirror images. They're two distorted reflections of the same misconception. So, given uh, a false belief, given a misconception, you have this this bubble anti-bubble, and by construction, you're looking at a situation where once the misconception is is understood, 
then the bubble bursts and the anti-bubble uh, goes up at effectively the same time in a synchronous manner and also with the same catalyst. So the second dimension is of the anti-bubble is a hedge against the bubble. And, and the name anti-bubble is a bit like the antivirus or the anti-missile. It's effectively this, this uh, mechanism, this defense mechanism. And, and then there's a third dimension, which is you know, more subtle, which uh, deals with this idea of, of rispremia, this contrarian nature. And a good example, perhaps, of, of the bubble-anti-bubble dynamic is the relationship between the uh, S&P, for example, uh, and the VIX. Uh, in my opinion, um, artificially low volatility can actually support artificially high um, equity prices. And, and, and this is driven uh, both from a, a qualitative perspective, uh, which is complacency and the perception of no risk, the idea that mommy and daddy will be there to, to support this, and, and also quantitative. You, you think about the double-edged sword of, of volatility, and you know what, what happens is when volatility explodes, then uh, value at risk increases, forced liquidation, and that actually feeds its, itself into, into liquidation. So the opposite could happen as well, and, and so these this dynamics, these three dimensions are uh, perhaps three aspects to, to watch for. But ultimately, uh, when you're thinking about bubbles or anti-bubbles, I think the key thing is, is look for the misconception. If you, uh, you know, that, that's the key. Show me the misconception and then I'll tell you what the bubble and anti-bubble are. And I love that you, uh, that you point out... Um you know, I guess the, the the reflexivity in a lot of these things between the bubbles and anti-bubbles, because I just, when you were speaking, I was thinking about the, the Valmageddon episode, and I think that really kind of highlighted that, uh, you know, sh- short volatility um, was to a certain extent, uh, goosing the stock market higher. I mean, there's just so many of these kind of self-reinforcing dynamics in the markets where you have potentially short volatility, um, you know, becoming so large that it suppresses volatility and then forces, you know, volatility targeting funds to take on more SPX exposure and whatnot. And I think there's just so many of these dynamics going on right now that, uh, we, you know, there's no way we could appreciate all of them, but uh, yeah. Yeah, they, they're definitely, you know, closely related. Um I wanted to you know, t- ask you about uh, how you go about applying right now this bubble and anti-bubble framework to a variety of asset classes. Obviously, um, you know, uh, in your piece that you recently wrote, uh, you know, focused on cryptocurrency, but you discuss other asset classes and things. How, so how, I guess, how do you look at, um, you know, the, the equity markets, uh, you know, in light of the, this framework right now? Well, again, to, to link it back to the bubble anti-bubble framework, um, we should think about some of the uh, beliefs, uh, arguably uh, misconceptions that are driving things, right? Uh, one of them, one of the key pillars is this idea that uh, you can solve problems by printing money. And that, that belief, which goes closely linked to uh, monetary policy without limits, 
what we would define as the central bank put, whereby mommy and daddy, you know, have, have your back. And this idea that you can have this relentless process of, you know, uh, zero negative interest rates, infinite liquidity, and, and just solving problems by printing money, it's, in my view, a misconception. You're not really solving any problems. You are uh, delaying uh, these problems by uh, linking them to, to another uh, belief, which is the, the, or misconception, which is this idea that you can also borrow your way out of problems. You know, you can have infinite debt, you can spend your way out. And, and these two um, uh, beliefs, the, 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 the belief in the, uh, that you can print your way out, that you can borrow your way out, uh, as I said, are not really, in my view, uh, real. They're, they're fallacies, they're misconceptions. And then uh, uh, we're not really solving any problems. We're doing four things. We are, uh, first, we are delaying those problems. We're kicking the can down the road. We're in the form of, of debt. Secondly, we are transferring the problems. So effectively through currency wars and, and trade wars, you, you have this beggar thy neighbor uh, dynamic where on a very cynical basis, central banks apply these policies as domestic, but they have a clear uh, impact on, on, on the rest of the world. And, and, and whereby, you know, the, the currency wars uh, ultimately to, to trade wars because, uh, you know, you, you can't really force, you can put someone in the currency manipulator list, which is uh, ironic that the U.S. runs that when they are one of the largest <laughs> manipulators themselves. But, uh, but yeah, once, once someone is, is abusing their currency and trying to uh, devalue their way out of things, then uh, you need to defend yourself. And, and I think trade wars, I summarize, well, if you devalue by 20%, I will tariff you by 20%. And, and, and there's lots of dynamics that are taking place that are effectively not solving the problem. They're really transferring it. The, the third dimension is, is we are transforming the problems. And I think this is absolutely critical because uh, there are two major things that are, uh, you know, as we create this dynamic, what I, what I referred to, you know, the last decade of, you know, transformation from um, uh, risk-free interest into interest-free risk, which is really what's driven this last decade of relentless, you know, race to the bottom in, in, in interest rates and increasing liquidity. What is done is created these bubbles that by now are too big to fail. Um, and so we're caught in this situation where the normalization of monetary policy is science fiction. You can't really hike interest rates without uh, imploding the system and destroying the wealth effect. And, and therefore, you know, I think the, the only way out is going to be, you know, transforming those, those bubbles that are too big to fail into, obviously, uh, inflation and, and as a byproduct, inequality. And, and we're very familiar with uh, the history and, and, and what, what this brings. Um, so when you put these things together, this, you know, the fact that you're just delaying, transferring and transforming the problems, the, the bad news is that you end up just enlarging them. And, and that's, as, as our good common friend uh, and my co-author, Daniel Lacalle, would say, you know, if, if, if these policies worked and Argentina or Zimbabwe would be world leaders, right? And unfortunately, they're not. 
So we have this set of misconceptions, you know, this, some of which are narratives, some of which are, you know, very ingrained in, in, uh, in the mindset of the market. But ultimately, um, we, we need to be realistic. They're not solving those problems. And, and unfortunately, I think the dynamic is, is, is getting increasingly more, more complicated and, and more extreme, uh, even if uh, from the outside, you know, you could have this sense of uh, calm and, and complacency. Uh, obviously, we're, we're in, in, in situations that are, have been exacerbated by COVID and accelerated. And I think this dynamic is, is just, you know, continuing. And, and again, the bubbles are larger by the day. The systemic risk is huge. The complacency is enormous. The, and, and there are many things to, to, to worry about, uh, including the, the, the crypto space, in my opinion. Well, I think it's such an important point because <clears throat> whenever you bring up any kind of, uh, you know, fundamental concerns about the markets or anything, which everybody, you know, appreciates the overvaluation, I think, and, uh, you know, the, the potential fragilities in the market today. Um, and, and potentially, you know, Robert Schiller, uh, you know, brought up the parallels to the late twenties stock market recently in a New York Times article. And, you know, when you, when I share these things on Twitter or, you know, wherever the, the common response is, well, Never before have we had a central bank that is uh, hell bent on propping up the markets, and so I do think you know you're right. This this idea of a central bank put uh, probably not in itself is the uh, the misconception, but it seems like the misconception is maybe that people believe there is no expiration date on this put that it literally central banks can prop up markets indefinitely without any consequences, and. The, I guess the 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 anti bubble to that, which you know, I think you were discussing, is at some point extraordinary monetary policy. Uh, you know, today paired with extraordinary fiscal policy is going to lead to inflation, and that's the point where the central bank put expires. Um, do you, is that a fair way to, to characterize it? Yeah, I think. Look, the um, obviously the, the central bank put is is powerful, right? It takes many forms. It never fight the Fed, Draghi's whatever it takes, uh, PBOCs in control in in China. The, the the idea of the expiry date or the fact that there are limits uh, or there are no limits, which is the the belief. Um, yeah, it's it's a major concern. What we see is that. Monetary policy is subject to the law of diminishing returns, right? It was just about 700 billion back in 08 that was needed to bail out, in a way, the, the banks and stabilize the global financial system. Today, 700 billion is, is a joke, right? Is uh, is a market cap of a, a couple of uh, you know a small uh, give a few weeks and, and dodgy coin will be there. Uh, it's just uh, I think that this idea and this relentless um, you know, advance is, is, is a concern. It creates, is, is, is very difficult to fight. At the same time, it creates enormous complacency. I would almost say that the central bank put has become a central bank call. It's just like free money. Just buy this thing because um, there's no downside. Even if there was, mommy and daddy will come and save us. And as you said, this expiry date is, is the perception that there are no limits to monetary policy. Uh, unfortunately, it's an asymptotic process, you know, where 
you need it to do larger and larger amounts. It's also, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a relative process. You know, when you think about uh, what Europe did with negative interest rates, that happened only because the Federal Reserve was at zero. So uh, we would have never seen negative interest rates in Europe if, if the Fed had been at 2%. So this is all not just an absolute game, it's a relative game. Uh, you talked about absolute valuations in equities. Very clearly, uh, they're very high by, by any, any kind of measure. But then the narrative flips into the relative game. And, and I think I want to highlight the key thing be behind all these bubbles. And this is, you know, the absolute uh, foundation of the problem is artificially low interest rates. You know, when you have artificially low interest rates, such as zero or negative, any asset that you value discounting cash flows is artificially expensive. By, by definition, right? So we've been squeezing this orange of, you know, this, this monetary uh, policy by bringing rates to, to zero or negative, by bringing um, infinite liquidity under the perception that there's no liquidity, sorry, uh, inflation, which is, which is a fallacy. And, and as you have, and, and obviously there are, the debate is, is inflation, deflation debate is, is, a, is a full discussion on its own, but, I have to insist that the entire epicenter of the bubbles is artificially low interest rates, which have in turn, through a mechanical process, translated into artificially low credit spreads due to the desperate search for yield, artificially low volatility by you know, systematic volatility selling and other forms of, uh, of, of hidden leverage. Um, and this, as you mentioned earlier, through the volatility channel, this can get exposed and you get things like false diversification. You know, when this crisis unfold, you have way higher prices, way more levered uh, system. And then uh, it just becomes much bigger of a problem and it requires much larger of a, of a response. And you sort of go back to, to the earlier point. And I think this is, this is like a trailer, you know, like a huge truck that is on the highway out of control. And you can, you can try, you know, the, the, the faster we go and, and you know, it, it, the bigger they crash eventually. And, and this is a world that is becoming increasingly polarized in, in many ways. You know, a lot of the debates are, uh, is this worth zero or infinity? You know, it's, are we going to deflation or inflation? Is what is, it's, it's a very polarized world. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, 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 Again, going back to the, the first point on, on bubbles, anti-bubbles, I think we need to look for those misconceptions. We need to look for those artificial pieces of the puzzle and, and, and what, what the implications are. And, and once the artificial setup is, becomes too big to fail, then it's too big to fail. And, and, and the central bank's mandate flips, you know, and, and now they're, they're, they, have, they are the arsonists, as, as Jim Grant would say, of, of this um, situation. And they're also the firefighters in theory, uh, but they're certainly the arsonists behind behind this dynamic. And now I think they recognize very well that whilst financial stability has meant fighting inflation, now financial stability means we have to prevent these bubbles from imploding, because if they do, it's game over. And that's that's a new paradigm. We're in a new paradigm shift where if bubbles are too big to fail. We need to do whatever it takes to prevent that. And I think the mistake is rather than 
you know, uh, just keeping things in a, in a more uh, calm way. You know, that we're, we're just fueling this relentless, um, you know, uh, process of, 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 of bubbles, which, um, which is, is undoubtedly, in my view, not going to end up well. Well, I think it's a it's a really important point about the diminishing returns uh, from monetary policy. Uh, I think you know it's obvious that with every time the you know the market pulls back, you know yes, the market is now too big to fail. The, the Fed can't afford to have a negative wealth effect. Uh, you know, create kind of a self reinforcing downturn in the economy. Uh, and so every time they step in, they have to do so in a bigger and bigger way. And so, to believe in that Fed put, you have. I think you have to believe that uh, there is no limit to their ability to prop up markets, and and essentially there is no amount of money printing that will ever create inflation. Obviously, you don't believe that. You believe at some point, uh, you know, these bigger and bigger interventions will eventually lead to to inflation. Yeah, I think. Look, the inflation deflation debate has has two sides, right, and. There are very clear deflationary forces in the system. You can think about them as, you know, many of them as unemployment, is weak economic activity, it's uh, technology, is demographics, is overcapacity, it's uh, it's bubbles. There, there are so many deflationary forces in the system. Uh, in a way, this is like a freebie for central banks who can actually print even more without. Uh, creating this perception of of, um, of inflation, but ultimately this this force, this this solution, this bluff that you can actually print at infinitum without creating inflation is 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 cold. And I think on the inflation side, we've always talked about you know two phases. You have inflation in the stage one of of you know whereby. Uh, two plus two equals four, right? They're, they're printing money and things kind of go up in in a in a somewhat uh, predictable way. And then uh, the the speed and the pace of inflation is such that inflation expectations start to be a, a, a driver. And and you look at these pictures of a supermarket in Argentina where a loaf of bread or whatever is worth is 100,000 and then scraps is 150,000, right? And and this process where inflation accelerates is is obviously can even overtake the pace at which central banks might be printing or the system is printing. And that that tipping point where effectively there's no no way back, the money is burning your hands, it's going to be worthless, you, you rather switch it, um, leads to to that third phase of, of debasement, you know, complete debasement, where uh, uh, there's no turning back. And, and in some ways, uh, some people might argue, I was having a, a debate with a good friend today on, on whether that debasement's already happened, you know, and how <laughs> you're looking at uh, liabilities and the ability to, for these governments to, to, uh, to pay back and, and insolvency of the system and, and how, you know, this, 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 is that, this dynamic is playing out. I see absolutely... I have very little doubt or question that the this process uh, is not is not solving uh, the problems is is really transforming them into into inflation, and I think this inflation has the p- potential to create these these bubbles, and the implosion of these bubbles is deflationary, and you have these big uh, boom and busts where eventually 
you know you've done a lot of damage in the in the process and you haven't really fixed uh, anything and so uh, I, I think inflation is is what's coming uh, the paradigm shift means that the, this party will be paid by people who are holding cash fixed income and credit because the hundred dollars or euros that your 30-year 10 20 30-year bond are going to pay you uh, are not going to buy you much at all and and that's you know the the what i call the the frog in, in boiling water right i mean inflation we're all frogs in this monetary froth where you know the two percent inflation number is not it's not a it's not a, a random number. I think it's been uh, scientifically calculated so that they can over ten years you get diluted by twenty percent plus compounding, and uh, over you know twenty thirty years they've literally wiped out uh, uh, a very significant portion of of our wealth. Uh, it's 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 a tax, and, uh, and and the issue is can can they do this at the pace they need to do it to prevent the bubbles? without sending us into that phase two. And I think, again, there are, uh, you know, whoever believes that inflation is, is the CPI, then I think is delusional. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you and I, uh, Jesse, have different inflation baskets. I think all the listeners have different inflation baskets. I have, you know, university fees. Some, some other people have nappies, right? So ultimately, this idea that inflation is, is one number is, is, is wrong. They're just trying to point us out to, look, inflation is this one number, and by the way, it's now 2.03, when we'll know by looking at your uh, bills and, and, and that this is you know, significantly higher. And this is the process by which they, they will try to, to, uh, to get out. But I think there are some, uh, you know, the bluff uh, can be called and will be called particularly as uh, as the printing needs to accelerate, and and what we've seen in the last year or so is just unprecedented. So uh, again, lots of uh, drivers in both directions, but I think inflation is uh, it's already here. It's accelerating, and unless you pay attention, I think you, you will be paying for the party. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I wanted to to, to ask you next is um, you look at uh, inflation differently. I'm glad you brought up the CPI because uh, you wrote in your recent piece, inflation is not about the value of bread going up. It's about the value of money with which you buy bread going down. Um, so in your view, measuring inflation should be not done not by looking at the prices of goods and services as measured by CPI or PCE or any of these numbers, but simply by looking at the increase in the money supply. Is that correct? Sure. And I think that's, uh, there are lots of considerations. Clearly, again, this is a very simple idea, what what, what you just said and, and, and the way I think about inflation you know, it creates this this perception. You know, when you think that you know house prices are going up or bread, no, it's it's really about the uh, that value of your euros and and dollars going down. But our brain thinks that a dollar is a dollar and will continue to be a dollar. Uh, and and in ten years, that dollar will buy you stuff. Well, the reality is that dollar has been massively diluted. That dollar doesn't buy you much. And this idea, you know, I think. Uh, Brings us to to uh, obviously the real asset 
uh, versus uh, financial assets and, and you know, how assets that you can uh, or cannot print will be bigger losers or winners. So uh, you cannot print oil, you cannot print gold, uh, you can obviously print equity, you can print debt, you can print currencies, and and you can obviously print digital assets, <laughs> even if you know you want to create the perception of scarcity uh, around them. Um, I think it's it's a big fallacy. So uh, you know that, this brings us on to, to to a different part, but certainly it's it's you know for those who know the. Uh, the board game monopoly, right? Where you have this limited number of houses, and then depending on the money in circulation, that will be that will set the price of the of the houses. This is this is kind of the same, and it's happening in the trillions simultaneously across all these central banks around the world. Which, uh, if I print a trillion and you print a trillion, our exchange rate is unchanged. But at the end of the day, uh, the purchase power of of, of the individual money. Is um, is diminished, and I think this is maybe just as a, as a subtle comment uh, or side comment. I think it's it's a fine line that you need to be careful, especially when you are the the reserve currency of the world. I mean, think about you know the uh, investors and savers, whether it's China or Japan or whoever, who bought treasuries because they said, "Look, I uh, I trust the U.S." I'm putting my money in U.S. dollars because they will they will not abuse their position, and then turns out you have a crisis and money is being printed and is effectively diluting the value of those dollars, but is doing is being used domestically. It's being used to bail out the domestic airlines to give checks to American people, and and so this is a fine line where you know if you uh, are the U.S., you know how far can you go without um, upsetting or or creating a problem with with those who put trust in in that currency, and and again this is happening in uh, across the board uh, in in a, in a big scale, and and it creates this this conflicts. Um, so you know it all it all goes back to to, to the same points we we're making earlier. You know, trying to just uh, solve problems by by using. You know, printing infinite amount of money, borrowing infinite amounts of money, and, and just um, again, in turning to dynamics that let's not fool ourselves. They're not solving anything, and eventually uh, are, are coming back to bite us. And 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 this has multiple dimensions. But inflation, to me, is 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 very clear uh, as as the paradigm shift has already taken place and is accelerating. And I think it's such an important point that you make. You know, a lot of people, you know, would counter, I guess, the inflation debate saying that, uh, you know, after the financial crisis, we saw tons of QE money printing um, that didn't result in inflation. But what's changed, you know, over the last 12 months or so is we've seen fiscal policy uh, step up to match extraordinary monetary policy. And and to me, that that and at the same time, we've seen, you know, the money supply surge like it you know in, in a, ways it hasn't done in decades um clearly you know we didn't see that uh, in the in the wake of the great financial crisis so do you think do you view this as uh i guess modern monetary theory in practice already oh 100% it's already i mean this idea that you can actually spend and borrow 
without increasing taxes, this magic process, you know, by which you can just do whatever you want by simply printing money is, is a massive fallacy. And, but it, it's, it's happening, I think, like many or pretty much any uh, extreme measure, you tend to see these things happen during crisis. It's always sold as a temporary thing. Uh, which is just a matter of time. It becomes becomes permanent. Uh, think about QE, right? QE was sold as, okay, one-off. Uh, let's just, then it, you had QE2, then QE3, which was QE infinity. And then you had uh, other central banks following. And, and, and then today, even, you know, emerging markets are, 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 are doing QE and not even at, at, at zero rate. So I think these dynamics where you start, it's a very slippery slope once you start giving checks to people uh and and you know forgiving debt and doing lots of things that um you know all, all happening in, in 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 ways that are again creating uh, generational issues uh, inequality and and uh, overall i think mmt is is going to be hard to stop i mean let's see where uh, you know once we open that that tap you know people are hungry for more uh, for those who've done a bit of uh, history reading, we, we saw how uh, this was implemented in, in, in Japan successfully initially. And, and then the problem was when, when they tried to to offload these things and and it led to the assassination of the, of the finance minister. So it's kind of crazy how, you know, once you do these things, uh, everybody gets very used to their, their checks and entitlement and, you know, and, and all these things. And. Uh, I wish it was as, as easy as that, but uh, MMT for sure is is here, is, is already in, in, in big force, and and all these processes go go slowly and 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 then they they, they accelerate, and and we've seen again the boundaries being expanded over and over and over. You know whether it was zero interest rates or money printing or you know buying government bonds or then moving into uh, corporate credit and then moving into equities and then giving checks directly back to people. So th this is all happening uh, and and it's pretty much one way. And and once you go in this direction and you're already at zero rates, you start to hit the boundaries. Um, it's interesting. I think, you know, going back to or, or touching on, the, on on Bitcoin and digital, you know, I think it's interesting how this, this new dynamic of digital currencies is uh, be careful what you wish for, <laughs> because some people think that the embracement of, of central banks of, of digital currencies is, you know, proving that crypto or whatever is, is correct is, is, is absolutely the opposite. I mean, the, the fact that central banks can actually uh, move and, and are already doing it into digital currencies uh, by effectively removing paper currency and um and notes and, and coins, it, it means to start that uh, they can apply negative interest rates at will. So before you had the limits of, of if you had a 500 euro note, you could put it in under your pillow and negative interest rates would not apply because you, you have zero interest rates. Now, the minute those high denomination notes get taken out, which was obviously done with the excuse of fighting money laundering and terrorism, but they're out of the system, it makes it much more difficult to store money in, in big quantities. And therefore, that 
that zero boundary gets slowly taken out. And if you move into digital currencies, this, this will be accelerated. You could have a negative uh, interest rates on the money at pretty much at will. You can put uh, a time, you know, uh, stamps where you, you have to use this allowance in the next two weeks. You can print infinite amount of money instantaneously. So it, it's just bringing us to a whole new level of potential financial repression and and just this this financial bullying, you know, where if you have cash or you're being prudent, then uh, you know you're 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 in trouble because you're going to be diluted and taxed and through taxes and inflation and and so this is all. Uh, fascinating and, and, and leads us back to, the, to, to this relentless approach from uh, central banks and governments that uh, will continue to push the boundaries, uh, you know, as they legitimately, you know, try to keep their head above the water and, and get things moving in the right direction. But unfortunately, they're digging us deeper and deeper and deeper into, into a hole that, um, again, is going to have unintended consequences and 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 certainly they, they they can materialize in nasty ways well you know yeah it's a great point there's a, there's a fascinating um irony right now uh in in these misconceptions so it's kind of at the heart of these misconceptions i think and you know i think you mentioned the misconception you know uh, propping up asset prices financial asset prices is this idea of don't fight the Fed, that, uh, you know, there is no alternative to owning stocks when interest rates are suppressed. And, and so, you know, don't fight the Fed means you buy, you know, uh, financial assets. Um, at the same time, the Fed is saying we're going to do everything in our power to create inflation. So if you are going to really adopt the don't fight the Fed, uh, you know, mantra, then you would take them at their word and say they are they are biasing for higher inflation, which means uh, financial assets are not the place to be. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting to me that these kind of misconceptions uh, you know, result in this uh, hypocrisy. Um, so part of this, you know, dedication, though, to creating I inflation, um, you know, by by the central bank, you know, by the Fed uh, specifically, is, you know, comes back to, um, you know, MMT and these things. Um, I guess, do you think most investors right now, uh, you know, are, are, I guess, too focused on these short-term cyclical dynamics to really appreciate the larger tectonic shift under the way, underway in the markets in terms of inflation and these things? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. I think, um, you know, the... The realization that the bubbles are too big to fail are, I think we could probably timestamp this already back in Q4 2018. You know, you, ha you had a situation where the, the Fed tried to normalize monetary policy. And, you know, once upon a time, you know, monetary policy, interest rates of 5% were considered to be sort of the no normal. Uh, it, it took us a move to about 3% in, in Q4-18 in the front end and the, and the back end for things to implode. And, and we had to have these very emergency measures. And But there were a number of people that were pretty much gone. I mean, uh, GE and Ambev and a bunch of guys that were caught a little bit uh, levered. And I think ever since that paradigm shift uh, uh, where they have to be preemptive, they realized, look, we can't 
uh, once these bubbles start to go and companies go down and they fire 300,000 people and this thing goes, then it's, it's going to be really difficult to get it going. And we're going to have to pay the subsidies anyway in terms of unemployment. So we might as well just, you know, try to prevent these things from, from collapsing. And, and I think that that process, you know, which then was exacerbated, obviously, by COVID and sent, you know, sent us where we are today with a massive acceleration of both monetary and, and fiscal without precedence has, uh, has clearly put us in, 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 in this dynamic. Um, so, yeah, certainly. I think the, the paradigm shift has already happened. Uh, once upon a time, central banks were effectively uh, running their policies based on financial stability, which meant uh, control inflation, which is what our grandparents and parents have taught us. And, and today we've really uh, somewhat inadvertently perhaps created these monsters of a bubble, which is absolutely everywhere, from fixed income to credit to equities, which are, which are just too big to fail. And, and that's why I think the, that's become the true mandate now and why they're so focused on asset prices, because the wealth effect is, is, is brutal, right? I mean, the wealth effect, as most people will know in this call, is, you know, people as of today feel 50 billion richer from being long uh, Dogecoin, right? Uh, in the uh, assumption that Dogecoin was worth zero, <laughs> that money would never existed, right? But people feel that rich and they will behave that way and they will maybe buy another car or they will do whatever. Th this is just at a level that it's systemic. You know, if, if, this, if interest rates were to go up and, you know, you, the, the, the value of these assets, you know, was to, to normalize, it's, it's game over. So... Yeah, there's. I think the paradigm shift is taking place. It's it's accelerating. I don't think many investors are aware of what's happening. But to be honest, um, equities in a way are are obviously an inflation hedge. I mean, you are in a world with artificial low interest rates. The present value of cash flows 25, 50, 100 years out are worth something. Uh, and and this equity duration. That is the sensitivity to equity valuations to long-term interest rates is is obviously become very meaningful because as you approach zero interest rates, you know the PV of a hundred dollars in a hundred years is par. So, so this is just exacerbating the the dynamics and creating, you know, as you bring interest rates down and increasing the valuations and 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 having this impact through duration blah, blah, blah. This is all happening. And so, you know, again, the value investors in this environment, it's, it's, you might be looking for value in an environment that is completely distorted because, again, it's, it's almost like, you know, you're trying to decorate a house when the, the foundation is, from a geological perspective, is super unstable. So, that, that's the setup. We're all building this beautiful <laughs> construct under something that is highly artificial to the point that there's, there's no turning back. So, again, I think the key thing when people look forward, when you look about portfolio construction, there are two big dimensions that people are not, in my opinion, paying enough attention to. The first one is, is volatility, and the second one is inflation. From a volatility perspective, 
in, in using my my soccer analogy, you need teams that have strikers, midfielders, defenders, goalkeepers. You have to have a complete team, people that do well in risk on markets, people that do well in risk off markets, and you have to play as a team. But from a long-term perspective, inflation is becoming a really important component. So when you think about which strikers should I pick, which goalkeepers should I pick, we have a problem with cash, we have a problem with fixed income, and we have a problem with credit because they are effectively short inflation. As inflation goes up, then, and forget about CPI, as we said earlier, as the purchase power of your dollars goes down, you know, those 100 euros that you will get back from your uh, bonds and your uh, corporate credit and, and government bonds and cash is, is, is going down. And, and this is happening and is accelerating. So I do think that investors should pay attention to that. And that is, uh, again, exposing the, the bubble. And, and, and it's just tricky if, if those people try to get out what it means to equities and the whole the whole house of cards uh, sells off. So that's why I think there's no real way out, and the Federal Reserve is going to intervene uh, long-term interest rates through yield curve control. And you have to, you know, that's why I have the very contrarian view that you will see inflation and zero interest rates in the long end. This is completely the opposite of what the market's saying today which says, you know, looking at the textbook and looking at the rules of the game as we know it, you think, oh, if inflation comes in, then, of course, uh, interest rates will go up. Well, that's the old rules of the game. That's the scenario where things were normal. Uh, we've way past that point. You cannot hike interest rates. You need inflation. And I think you will have those. So that paradigm shift has meaningful implications. It's going to create a lot of volatility in the process. And we have these artificially uh, low rates, which create artificially high valuations. And as we move from misconceptions to beliefs to whatever, it's going to be a bumpy ride. And in the meantime, for sure, there'll be shocks. And, and we need to see the, the, the second order effects of those shocks through volatility and what they mean for risk. So it's just, it's just getting, the snowball is getting bigger and bigger uh, and, and it's all interlinked. So lo lots of hidden risks, lots of uh, artificial stuff and, and a big risk that we've talked about before, which is false diversification. Watch out for the perception of, oh, I bought a bunch of stuff. I'm diversified because, you know, when this crisis come, it's all the same thing and it all implodes at the same time. And that's why I, I insist that, you know, you may be playing just with strikers. You, you also need defenders and goalkeepers that will be uh, effective in this, in this new paradigm. And, and, and that, that is, is challenging, increasingly challenging. Well, I, I'm glad you put together the, you know, that how to kind of, look through this uh, paradigm shift in terms of, you know, portfolio construction, because I do think that, uh, you know, obviously uh, a, a paradigm shift in inflation is generally bearish for financial assets. I would argue it's probably bearish for um, both stocks and bonds um, and generally bullish for real assets. 
And with, you know, what we've seen in the markets for the past year, obviously, you know, this is just going right over people's heads. <laughs> People aren't really paying attention to this if this is what's actually unfolding. Um, but there is one group, um, you know, of people which, which do seem to appreciate these risks, and that is the, uh, you know, the, the, the crypto space. Um, they do seem to appreciate the risks posed by um, extraordinary uh, monetary policy and uh, look for a way, are, are, you know, clearly looking for a way and believe they found a way to protect themselves uh, in that type of environment. But in your recent piece, you argue that, uh, that uh, crypto and Bitcoin specifically um, is yet another bubble. What, what is the misconception? I guess let's tackle the misconceptions, um, you know, underpinning this bubble. Sure. Look, um, yeah, my, my conclusion, and for those who are interested, take take a look at my article on LinkedIn under Diego Perrilla, double R, double L. Um, yeah, my conclusion is it's sort of a, it's a 20% anti-bubble, 80% bubble. I, I break it down in, in a fair amount of detail with sort of the first part touches on the the problem you know we, we've discussed uh, you know in at length uh, just now the issues with uh, debasement with inflation with central bank independence i think we're all well aware of this uh, the the merits which is part two of of the the technology a game changer technology whether it's blockchain or, or bitcoin the fact that adoption is taking place and it's been used as as means of payment these are great merits and, but unfortunately, you know, there are a number of threats that um, even if uh, Bitcoin was the, the, the right solution, uh, we need reality checks and threats that are uh, uh, meaningful and that go a long way. And I think there are significant misconceptions because uh, we discussed the, the importance of central bank seniorage, the, 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 which is you know, the difference basically between how much it costs to do a uh, 500 euro or note and what it buys you. It, it, it may well cost the central bank one cent, but they, they, they can use, they can buy something for 500. Now, central banks will never give this back, never give up seniorage. We've seen in history uh, pretty extreme cases which uh, in my research even took to scenarios where you have death penalty for not accepting uh, paper currency. And, and so I think we've already seen uh, sort of illegal tender, the threat in places like India or Turkey. Clearly, as the country gets in, in more serious trouble uh, and the money leaves and, you know, the, the government will have to tighten things up. The, the excuse uh, of, of money laundering and, and terrorism, I think, are there for central banks. We've seen Janet uh, Yellen uh, already touching on this, so they will not go or, or admit the shortcomings of the dollar and the merits of anything else. They'll try to find excuses like that. Uh, certainly uh, taxation. I think anybody who's long Bitcoin, just make sure you set aside uh, 40% or whatever that that uh, will be in, in these things. Even if you think you're out of the system, don't be naive. <laughs> it is there and will be there. And the risk of increased could happen any, any minute. But but I, I see lots of things that are also on the threat category that touch on, you know, similar dynamics to what we saw even in, in 08. You know, I think you might remember 
just see those CDOs and then CDO squared, right? So to me, the, the whole NFT dynamic, the non-fungible tokens is a bit that CDO squared. Now is the is the derivative of the derivative, is the compounded effect of. So it's fascinating what's happening. We talked about digital currencies. Again, don't fool yourselves. This is really bad news uh, for everybody, uh, except the, the, the central banks who, who will have a much tighter and, and of course, uh, tighten on, on, on stuff. The, the threat of a superior technology, I think it'd be naive to think that this is it. Technology keeps moving uh, and, and, and a number of others, you know, uh, which are very relevant such as cyber attacks or a very important one with the environmental considerations and ESG, which here in Europe are huge and, uh, and relate. But I think more interestingly, the, the fourth category is, is the fallacies. These are areas where beyond the threats that you might have, uh, I think the fallacies to me are closely linked to, to narratives. But the, one of the key ones is in my opinion, and again, I started the note saying, uh, you know, like like Frida Kahlo, I don't want you to think like myself. I want you to think. So these are thought-provoking ideas. But uh, again, I have uh, these are just for, for for discussion. But I I call it the first one is the scarcity fallacy, and 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 this touches on your point on real assets and and digital assets. Uh, you know, we all. By now, I think we're all familiar. There's only 121 million bitcoins, but uh, there are obviously 21 million cryptos we could create. And I've had the debate with uh, even my good friend Daniel Lacalle, you know, who was saying, "Yeah, Diego, but you know, they're not—they're really serving different purposes. It's like like gold and silver." And and I would argue that it's it's more like our book on the energy market, where you know it, it's about the the end use and how. You know this this fallacy of the monopoly of crude oil, and uh, and so I think the very closely linked to this perception of scarcity uh, comes the the idea that it's a good inflation hedge uh, uh, by 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 construction by making it sort of uh, something you cannot print. But what is interesting here is it, it touches on with the what I would call the monopoly fallacy, and this is where the crypto community is sort of split between the, uh, if it was a religion, the fundamentalists, they can only be one, and and, and the polytheists, right? But I think they, they, they can only be one is so important and so central because Dogecoin, I think, honestly, when I saw the tweet from, uh, from uh, Elon Musk, I actually honestly thought it was a joke. It was it was sort of like putting out uh, like, what are you talking about, guys? You know, you think that uh, Bitcoin is the is the only real thing. Look, let's just uh, you know, how about this this Dogecoin? The fact that that's now fifty billion, I think it's sort of um, phenomenal on its own right. It's very uh, shows what's happening, but I think it, it points to a major risk because. A world where you can have literally this infinite amount of cryptos, I think I've been offered, you can create your Felder coin or the, the Diego coin for 25 grand, right? So th these things are, uh, I think, uh, testing or putting at risk this, this dynamic. If you truly only had Bitcoin uh, as, as the only game in town, uh, I think, which was the case, 
after the collapse, when every single crypto went to zero, uh, Bitcoin's the only one that held the head above the water. But now I think we're back again into this dynamic where we're seeing this um, uh, emerging left, right and center and creating uh, paper billionaires everywhere. Um, so I think, you know, the, the entire uh, private coins and, and all this dynamic, I think it's uh, something I would question. But but then I think looking into the the more technical stuff, you know, I, I also have concerns about the network effect and how it's been positioned, you know, network effect and, and Metcalfe's law. I mean, network effect is uh, defined as the equivalent of economies of scale on, on the demand side. It's this idea that the more people uh, playing, the, the more value you're willing, the more, the higher the price you're, you're willing to pay. And uh, Metcalfe's law, which looks at the value being proportional to the square of participants. I think there's a very fundamental flaw, in my opinion, which is confusing utility and price. And I've seen this kind of mistake, uh, in my opinion, mistake been made a number of times. Uh, you know, the, the idea that, yeah, the telephone, obviously, if you have two people in the network, you add a third, a fourth, the interconnectivity grows again exponentially. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm willing to pay uh, exponentially higher prices uh, for uh, for my phone uh, or in, in pretty much the what we've seen is the opposite. So the, there are... Lots of, in my opinion, uh, interesting points and dynamics that are being applied and logical jumps that, in my humble opinion, uh, are, you know, remind me a little bit of, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, you see in uh, this teaser where you see uh, one equals one and then they start playing one plus one equals one and then eventually one equals two, right? I mean, there's, a, there's some jumps in the, in, in the process where I think this, uh, you know, the, the confusing utility and price is a pretty basic mistake, but I think uh, people take it for granted. So related to that and to finish, I think there's a whole set of narratives that is, um, is, is, is working in both directions. Uh, most famously, I guess, uh, BIS, CARTENS, define it as a bubble, Ponzi, and, and an environmental disaster. But I, I love the the prisoner's dilemma, as I call it, with with the hodl, you know, where again it relates to the um, to the uh, the process with uh, you know the, the monopoly fallacy. And uh, but there's been people that I respect, and uh, you know Raoul Pal, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, he's famous, uh, Bitcoin being the fastest horse. Uh, in the in the inflation race, which he put out in his note with with Bitcoin around 8k, and is proven to be very correct. Uh, but obviously, you know, people use the argument that Paul Tudor Jones or Drucker Miller are buying it as we're correct. And uh, the only thing I can tell you is that Paul Tudor Jones and Drucker Miller are bubble traders. They couldn't give uh, a damn <laughs> about gold or Bitcoin. They just saw a bubble dynamic plane and they will make money on the way up and will make money on the way down. And so I think, you know, adding to, to the FOMO, probably my favorite, uh, stay, have fun, staying poor <laughs> and all these dynamics that I think are pretty, pretty interesting, including, you know, uh, the, the issues with, with Tether and, and the potential fraud, 
the, the issues with costs that friends of mine are, are telling me as they try to buy a, a coffee and it costs five times in fees and more than the cost. So really a fascinating world. I, I, I briefly summarized uh, some of the points. Again, uh, food for thought, for discussion. But uh, clearly the speculation is, is getting significant. Over the weekend we saw, you know, major... Uh, moves and 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 I think the development of futures and options. Uh, I think it's a it's a signal for for caution, and and ultimately we'll see. I think the there are lots of merits in the technology. There are huge problems to deal with. Uh, there are very powerful narratives, and at the same time I think a lot of fallacies that are misconceptions that are not well enough understood. But but look, for the time being, uh, this is uh, uh, this is where we are. I think uh, impossible to. I don't have a crystal ball, and 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 I don't claim to be in position of of, of the of the truth. But certainly, it's a space that I think uh, it's going to be. It's it's high risk. It's very volatile, and uh, positioning as as a currency. I think Nicolas Taleb would argue that you cannot have a currency that is more volatile than the underlying you're trying to buy with. And, and so there are lots and lots of people on, on both extremes. Uh, I respect people on both sides. I, I happen to, to believe that, uh, yeah, this is uh, more direct merits, and, and I recognize that. But I think overall my conclusion is, is, is 20% anti-bubble, 80% bubble. But uh, time will tell. I'm glad you brought up um, Stan Druckenmiller and uh, Paul Tudor Jones in your piece. It reminds me, you mentioned George Soros earlier. There's a great George Soros quote where he says, um, you know, whenever I see a bubble, I, I jump in to throw fuel onto the fire. That's not irrational, right? And and I think that's exactly what these guys are doing. They're not going to hodl uh, cryptocurrencies. They're traders and they're looking to to trade it. Um, but at the same time, you know, we we discussed this uh, crypto as as a, a bubble. But I guess the flip side of that would be the anti bubble in gold. Um, I, I think there's another fascinating irony here too, where at the same time, I think we're seeing the fundamental case for gold uh, develop in a way that is maybe more bullish than anything we've seen in in our lifetimes. Uh, sentiment has, uh, you know, the, the reflection of, I guess, the inverse of this bullishness towards cryptos is is uh, kind of manifest in a, in, a, in a bearishness towards gold uh, right now. Uh, can, how do you how do you look at gold in terms of this anti-bubble framework right now? Look, I, I certainly uh, have a view that uh, gold is always been the anti-bubble of the of the fiat. Um, it, the, the history of, of gold is is you know two and a half thousand years, um, and and yeah, you could argue that uh, this is this is uh, we're dinosaurs and, and and you know thinking about gold is is, uh, is dated. But at the same time, we've seen, for example, the Central Bank of Hungary uh, making a $3.5 billion purchase of gold recently. Uh, most people won't even know where Hungary is. Uh, and, and, and yet, this is 2.3 times bigger than the Tesla purchase of Bitcoin. It's about 2 million ounces of gold. And, and I think the, the role of, of, of gold as in the currency system is... Uh, has a long history, and, and I think central banks that um, you know look to position themselves as reliable currencies. We mentioned earlier 
the damage that the U.S. dollar is doing uh, to itself by by abusing its position. We mentioned the risk of digital euros or digital dollars in accelerating this abuse, and certainly Bitcoin is a very fair way to try to 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 exit. But I, I do think gold. Uh, I do believe that you can generally not print gold, uh, whilst you can generally uh, print cryptos, and and I think. In that sense, and back to your point earlier, the, the real strength of gold is its, its, its physical nature, its, its, its properties, is uh, scarce enough. Uh, I love it when they call it that shiny rock. <laughs> um, yeah, it is beautiful. It's shiny and, and it has properties that you know are not matched physically and chemically by, by many other things. And, and that's the reason why it's there. Um, so uh, I think in this battle, you know, the way China plays with it, the way other uh, big central banks uh, align towards gold, I think it's it's uh, it's relevant. But ultimately, uh, it is a real asset. And I think back to our point earlier in portfolio construction, real assets in this environment where you have low interest rates and, and pretty much very unlikely that interest rates can go up without creating a, a major problem, which means they would need to go back down. You know, you have a situation where interest rates are low and likely to remain low for the foreseeable future. Inflation going up, uh, it, it's a no-brainer to be long uh, real assets. Uh, given the choice, I'd rather own gold or land than, uh, than Bitcoin. But in all fairness, uh, I think the cryptos, you know, back in the day, if you were in Vietnam, and you wanted to, to escape the country, then uh, fleeing the country with gold was, was you know, the, the best way to, to take something with you. And now your Bitcoin wallet is, is even easier, right? And this is why I think these governments, whether it's Turkey or India, uh, are slowly, um, effectively, you know, clamping on this. But, uh, but yeah, my, my ultimate view is I think uh, gold is not only now the anti-bubble of, of fiat, I think it's also, in a way, the anti-bubble of, of crypto. And um, I'm not a big into conspiracy theories. I've never been. Lots of people claim gold is manipulated and whatever. I, 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 personally, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. But I think it's undoubtable that the price action in gold is being, has suffered from people who, for the right reasons or the, their right reasons, uh, decided to, to sell gold and, and buy crypto. And I think in some cases you might even see, uh, which I think is the case today, uh, short position in gold, long crypto. And that, be careful because it can actually uh, explode in, in a big way. So to the extent that the market is now very clean, massive, uh, I mean, it's a very, very painful trade to be, uh, long gold, you know, hard to explain. Arguably, based on what we've seen and the and the fundamental moves and the print, everything that's happened um, should be pointing higher. But gold now is closely trading real yields. But I, I do view gold as as one of the key anti bubbles in the system. Uh, perhaps uh, again, uh, despite my my considerations, you know, people can consider crypto or other bitcoins. But I, I would. I would think that the, the proof ultimately will be in the in the pudding, right? And if the S&P is down 20%, uh, what is uh, Bitcoin and gold going to do? Uh, I don't know. Uh, my 
view is that right now uh, gold is much better positioned to perform very strongly in such scenario. I think Bitcoin, you know, uh, is potentially more exposed to the the leverage uh, across the Teslas and other assets that, uh, in my opinion, could be uh, artificially high. So time will tell. Uh, at the end of the day, as long as you are prudent and you build a diversified portfolio, you know, I think Bitcoin has been an extraordinarily effective player in the team. Just uh, uh, don't uh, become overconfident. Don't sell puts. Don't uh, buy the dip with leverage. Don't do all these things that uh, will basically make you bankrupt. Uh, that, that would be my advice. Uh, just just be prudent. And, and, and yeah, I think my, my money and my view is I favor gold. And that's my mandate in the strategy. I don't trade neither long or short uh, any of the cryptos. I leave that to the experts. Uh, but but my view is is reinforced. Um, I, when I published the anti bubbles, I, I, I called about you know a perfect storm for gold, and I think that's in a way uh, been reinforced uh, since since the book was published. Well, Diego. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's probably getting late there in Madrid. It's still only nine o'clock in the morning here in Oregon. So I need to probably grab some breakfast and you probably need to grab some dinner. But uh, before I let you go, where can uh, where can people keep up with you and your ideas? Well, I, um, I they can contact me in, uh, through Twitter at Parrilla Diego, P-A-R-R-I-L-L-A in Diego, like San Diego or uh, LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I publish uh, occasionally, but uh, when I feel there's something to say. And, uh, and yeah, feel free to reach out. Uh, you know, we, we run, um, again, I do some of these contributions. We, we also have distribution lists where we, you know, we give updates on our strategies and ideas. So uh, again, very, very happy to to connect and, and, and discuss as, as needed. But um, th- that's probably the, the, the best way. Perfect. And I, I highly recommend everybody go check out or follow Diego on uh, LinkedIn. Um, you're one of the, the thinkers uh, in the markets that I, I, I don't fail to uh, pay attention to everything there it is that, uh, that you write or put forward. So thank you again for taking the time, Diego. I recommend everybody go check out uh, his LinkedIn page and, uh, connect with you directly so we'll do this again sometime soon it's been my absolute pleasure jesse keep keep up the great work and uh thank you so much for the invitation uh and good luck to everybody stay healthy and uh, best of luck with the markets and that does it for another episode of super investors and the art of worldly wisdom As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.